Rocklahoma 2023 Music Festival is September 1st through the 3rd, 2023. And KUAF is giving you the chance to win VIP tickets. Held in Pryor, Oklahoma, bands include Asking Alexandria, Rob Zombie, Aaron Jones, and more. Winners will be announced on Friday, August 25th during Ozarks at Large. KUAF.com for complete lineup and registration. This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, July 26, 2023. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Ahead this hour, we prepare for Stroll the Atolls, a day-long festival of dance, food, music, art, and a bit of fire. The celebration of Pacific Islander culture is in downtown Springdale Saturday afternoon and evening. The preview in today's second half hour. First up, a new professional sports team is making plans in Rogers. Actually, make that two. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth reports. In early July, soccer fans in northwest Arkansas got a bit of a surprise. Um, so we're really thrilled to showcase you know, our region to the globe. And so why not have the global sport here at, in our home backyard? So with that, we're officially excited to announce that we've secured the rights to the land of the stadium right here in Rogers, Arkansas, beautiful Pinnacle Hills Entertainment District. That was Chris Martinovich speaking at a press conference in Rogers at the site where a new 5,000-seat professional soccer stadium will eventually stand. Martinovich, along with his co-founder Warren Smith and representatives from the United Soccer League and the city of Rogers, announced plans to bring men's and women's professional soccer to the region by 2026. Martinovich says he's been working on this project since 2019. At the time, it was purely an idea, maybe a, maybe a little hobby, maybe a little side project that I could work on was the way I thought of it. Martinovich, a former collegiate and pro soccer player, moved to the region from New Jersey in 2007 to work for a Walmart vendor and says he liked the area so much he decided to stay but he says he desperately missed getting to see live professional sports. And fortunate for me and, and through my soccer career, I developed a lot of relationships at you know national levels, MLS levels, USL levels. He says one of the first hurdles, though, was convincing his USL contacts that Northwest Arkansas was even a worthy market. The initial response was, well, we're kind of looking at really bigger markets, right? That conversation, you know, ended very quickly once they once I, I was able to, you know, give them some of the demographic data. I started doing kind of a an analysis on on our our demographics versus USL, laid it out for them. And he says interest in soccer has been steadily growing in the US and he believes upcoming international tournaments close to home will draw a new set of fans. We have Copa America coming um, in 2024 that's being hosted. In America, um, this is a championship that encompasses North, Central, and South America. Teams like Brazil and Argentina and the U.S. and Mexico will all get to play against each other. Then you have a club world championship coming here in 2025, I believe. And that will that will put the best clubs like Real Madrid, Barcelona, Manchester United, uh, pit those against each other for a club world championship. And then the big event is the 2026 World Cup that's being hosted in the U.S., Martinovich believes Northwest Arkansas is primed to capitalize on that excitement. And he says the sport already has an audience, as evidenced by the numerous youth clubs and the success of the Razorback women's soccer team. And can draw several thousand people to a women's college soccer game, which, by the way, is, I think, last time I checked in the top, top several of any women's college soccer team in America. So you have all these factors and people that have helped 
grow this to the point where now's the right time. So most casual sports fans likely know about Major League Soccer, or MLS. The USL, United Soccer League, is one tier below that. Think minor leagues, with pro and semi-pro leagues. The USL Championship, where this team will be playing, currently has 24 men's professional teams, each playing a 34-game regular season from March to October. On the women's side, there's the top National Women's Soccer League, or NWSL, then pre-professional USLW, and the recently announced USL Super League, which is where the Northwest Arkansas team is slotted to play beginning in the fall of 2026. So, getting the learning curve for casual fans in the region, Martinovich says, is a bit steep. But he does say the enthusiasm is there. They're just excited because they watched a little bit of the World Cup or they see that the U.S. national team is the one of the youngest teams in the world. And now we're building up to 2026 and there's just um, a lot of these casual fans are really coming on board to the beautiful game. So we're going to spend a lot of time kind of uh, cultivating them, listening to them, but educating as well. Most importantly, though, he says the club wants to engage with the community before it ever gets up and running. Last Thursday, USL Arkansas held a listening session for the general public at Rendezvous Brewing Company in Rogers, just yards away from the planned stadium grounds. Past the high ceilings and kegs of the crowded tap room, 15 people clutch plastic cups of beer as they shuffle into a gray conference room. The group was compiled from an interest survey sent through the Northwest Arkansas Council. Eric Bruton and Jared Wilson sit at the front of the room chatting before the session starts. Uh, I think both of us have wanted this to happen for a long time, so just excited to add some input and learn more about what's going on. And, uh, I think we're overdue for, for something like this. And, yeah. Definitely with a growing area that we have and, you know, just the diversity that comes to this area as well. I think it's long overdue for soccer and been a big fan of soccer for a very long time and just hoping to learn more about what the goal is here with the USL club coming to Rogers. Well, just make sure we've got this sort of, you know, how can we foster soccer in the U.S. more? Brittany Johnson is a self-proclaimed soccer fanatic. The Houston native moved to Fayetteville for work and says having live sports not tied to the University of Arkansas is exciting. It'd be great to have a sports team that's not the Razorbacks. I'm an Aggie, so I'm not going to go to a Razorback game. But um, I think that it's another really good addition for an area that's growing and that is looking to offer people opportunities to feel more like they belong to Northwest Arkansas. They're so I'm not from here, and I, there are so many people moving here from other places, and sports do such a good job of bringing people together and rallying people around that I think it'll be nice to build community that way. USL Arkansas is hosting 15 listening sessions like this, with two in Spanish and one in Marshallese, and taking place all across the region, from Siloam Springs down to Fort Smith. The sessions are meant to gauge everything from thoughts and feelings about the region to team crests and colors and logos to a team name and the general public's interest in seeing professional soccer. One place where the USL has already begun to take root in the natural state is in Little Rock. 
The city has been home to the semi-pro USL League 2 team, the Rangers, since 2016. And over the weekend, they hosted the Southern Conference playoffs for the first time since 2018. Outside of War Memorial Stadium, a small but dedicated group of fans gathered for a tailgate on Friday ahead of the tournament kickoff. Ben Cobb, his mother Gretchen, and friend Danny Hernandez sit on lawn chairs under a tent. And I, and I think Little Rock has a great support system here. Like, it's just the fans here are awesome. They, sh they turn out here. Yeah. I think that's something we have going in Little Rock that I don't know. I haven't seen the Fayetteville scene for soccer in Little Rock. It's it's definitely a lot of fans, a lot of support. It is very grassroots. And most of us here today have been to some of like the inaugural games of this team, which, you know, we've seen this team grow. I mean, I remember the first time we came to a game, there was just one guy down there just kind of yelling, yeah. Rangers, and then we'd yell Rangers, and it was just a really kind of a slow process. But over the years now, there's like a whole drum corps down there, yeah. and there's just like a whole kind of volunteer cheer section. Yeah. And so it's just been really fun to watch. On Sunday, the crowds hit a record high of 7,700 people for the semifinal. Spokesperson for the Rangers, Trent Escola, says while momentum is up, the club has faced challenges with getting supporters and earning profits. So League Two tends to be about 150000 a year. Obviously, that's just for the summer, and you're not paying the players. Championship tends to be anywhere between $50 million and $100 million. So there's a, there's a big gap. But uh, w once you have it for a couple of years, you kind of start making that money back from, from jersey sales and tickets and competition rewards and stuff like that. And Escola says news of a Northwest Arkansas team is good for the Rangers and soccer as a whole in the state. Getting that, that big donor that's willing to invest the, uh, the millions of dollars to bring in top players to build a, a top stadium that can host international games, that's kind of our next step. So we're, we're not quite to the, the level that the Northwest Arkansas Club is, is at, but uh, we're, we're getting there, and uh, it's exciting to see that we have two uh, potential pro clubs uh, in Arkansas coming around. Martinovich says USL Arkansas still has a long way to go. As of now, there's no team name, no players, and no coach. But that, he says, will all come with time. I think it all starts with, with just being really good stewards of the brand, listening, engaging the community, and then providing a great product on the field, right? That's, that's important. We, we want to play good, attractive soccer. He says the estimated $15 million stadium and the teams that will play there are expected to be ready by 2026. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. Daniel Carruth produces his stories inside the Karen Taha News Studio. You can find more details about USL Arkansas, including links and more details on Daniel's reporting, on our website, ozarksatlarge.com. Do you need to get rid of your old car? Why not donate it to KUAF? It could provide hundreds of dollars of support to your favorite programs. All you have to do is call 855-500-RIDE and schedule a pickup. It will be towed, sold, and you will get a receipt for your taxes. Find more information on the membership support page at KUAF.com.
Close to one in four new students at the University of Arkansas Fort Smith identifies as Hispanic. And UAFS admission officials want to make sure all parents and families have an informative new student orientation. In particular, with students that are Hispanic, um, it's more of a family decision, right? And so encouraging students that they can bring their parents, they can bring their families, making sure everybody has all the information in front of them that they need when it's time to make those, because students may still be shopping at orientation. A new student orientation in two languages, later today on Ozarks at Large. We have to continue to carve out a space for Blacks and African Americans to really feel fully invested in our community here in Northwest Arkansas. Mm. On the latest episode of The Beloved Community, a podcast with the Northwest Arkansas Martin Luther King Jr. Council and KUAF, Hosts and council members Chris Seawood and Lindsay Leverett Higgins discuss the council's efforts to develop strategies aimed at improving black life in Northwest Arkansas through a new electronic census project. What is it that we're missing in Northwest Arkansas that is a vast need, a desire for people in our community? Mm. We want to make sure that we're connecting with the community so that the data really has an opportunity to speak and to tell the story. Listen to the beloved community for free at KUAF.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. An Arkansas law that could bring criminal charges to librarians for providing materials that are, quote, harmful to minors is being questioned in a federal courthouse in Fayetteville. U.S. District Court Judge Timothy Brooks said yesterday he will decide on a preliminary injunction request seeking to block Act 372 by the end of this week. Several Arkansas libraries, library associations, bookstore owners, and booksellers have sued Crawford County officials and state prosecuting attorneys. Noah Watson defended Act 372 on behalf of the Office of the Arkansas Attorney General Tim Griffin. You can find a more detailed analysis of the court hearing from our partners at Talk Business and Politics. Arkansas's State Treasurer Mark Lowry has died. Lowry had suffered two strokes since being elected in November. Yesterday, it was announced he would resign from the position in the fall. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders will appoint a replacement. There are going to be some overnight lane closures on part of I-49 beginning tonight. In a press release, the Arkansas Department of Transportation says closures are expected between 11 p.m. and 5 a.m. each night through Tuesday between mile marker 63, that's the Weddington Drive exit, and exit 64, the Stephen Carr exit in Fayetteville. A deadline is approaching for Arkansas veterans who may have been exposed to toxic chemicals while serving. The PACT Act, signed into law by President Joe Biden last year, allocates $797 billion for veterans who were exposed to toxic substances during their military service. Arlo Taylor, the spokesperson for the Central Arkansas Veterans Health Care System, says more than 500 veterans attended a Summer Vet Fest event earlier this week to help better connect them to the benefits to which they're entitled. We really wanted to make it value-added for anyone that came out, that, because there, there were lines, uh, because there's a lot of people wanting to get their screenings, as well as their benefits claims started. But uh, we always try to make certain, to offer an opportunity for our veterans to meet people that run our programs and services, as well as the providers that will be giving them their care. Veterans have until August 10th to file with the Veterans Benefits Administration in order to have benefits backdated to last August when the PACT Act was signed into law. 
Rogers-based Onyx Coffee Lab is opening another location in the region. The company announced yesterday they're setting up shop in downtown Springdale inside West Emma Avenue's former First Security Bank complex. Andrea and John Allen, owners of Onyx, have said this location will have a focus on chocolate with new pastry, breakfast, and even ice cream options. Construction is expected to begin September 1st, and my wife will be in line on that day, too. <laughs> and singer Lana Del Rey is coming to Rogers. The Walmart Amp announced this morning she'll perform Tuesday, August 8th. Tickets go on sale Friday morning through the usual Walton Art Center outlets. third new student orientation of the summer on the campus of the University of Arkansas, Fort Smith, is Friday. For the first time, there will be a full track for Spanish-speaking parents and families. Spanish language sessions will cover financial aid, campus resources, and offer parents a chance to talk with current students about their experiences. Yesterday, I talked with Blake Bedsell, director of admissions at UAFS, about the orientation. He says the groundwork for a new student orientation that includes Spanish sessions began last year before he arrived on campus. Our admission staff and our retention staff kind of noticed a need at our orientation program last year um, that a lot of our Hispanic population um, had families that were still primarily speaking Spanish. And so um, our, our admission, some of our admission staff and some of our retention team really worked with our, our new student programs this academic year to try to drive that forward that we wanted to do one orientation track that was delivered in Spanish. And so um, just a little background kind of on our Hispanic student population, if that would be helpful. So from last year's data, around 9% of total undergraduate enrollment in the state of Arkansas is Hispanic students. But at UFIS, um, we're almost at 20% overall. So um, our overall number last fall was around 19% of our student body identifies as Hispanic. Um, our freshman class, uh, just above 21%. Uh, of our incoming freshman class identified as Hispanic. And so, again, we know that there's a, a core base of our student body uh, that may need some of this additional support. There's also a lot of crossover in the number of first-generation college students that we serve that a large percentage of our Hispanic population is also um, the first in their families to go to college as well. And that even though our students speak English fluently, their parents and families at home may not, and Spanish may be the language of uh, communication at home. So it just kind of seems like the right thing to do. I think back to my new student orientation, and I remember my parents asking me questions, what did I learn about certain things that as an 18-year-old, I never thought to ask. Had my parents been there, it would have been <laughs> very helpful over the course of my college career, because parents can think to ask questions that 18-year-olds can't, and this is eliminating a barrier to allow some of those more mature questions to be asked. We hope so. So if, if a lot of the literature in higher ed right now is about how parents and families have become that number one influencer again, and this is just across, this is across everybody, you know, all uh, race and ethnicities, but in particular with students that are Hispanic, um, it's more of a family decision, right? And so, like you just said, 
encouraging students that they can bring their parents, they can bring their families, making sure everybody has all the information in front of them that they need when it's time to make those, because students may still be shopping at orientation. Uh, students are going to more than one orientation. You know, they may uh, be admitted to multiple places. And so this is kind of our last opportunity to um, get what UFIS is out in front of them and the fact that we really do have some of their needs in mind. Um, so we are the only four-year institution in Arkansas identified by the federal government as an emerging Hispanic uh, serving institution. And so what that means is that our population is above 15%, but not quite at the 25% level to be a full HSI. Um, and so if we get above that 25% mark, we will be the first four-year public institution in Arkansas to be um, th that Hispanic serving institution. And then with that, have some avenues for additional support from the federal government in terms of grants that can help us support our programming and student success efforts. So we're really excited about that trajectory that we've been on for the last couple of years in that. And um, we're really lucky in, in our admissions office to have two bilingual admissions counselors. One's based in Northwest Arkansas um, and does regional recruitment for us uh, there. And then one in our office in Fort Smith. So I noticed that, you know, the new orientation sessions that'll be in Spanish include financial aid and, and campus amenities, things like that, which is understandable. But there are also opportunities for parents and families to talk to current students about their experiences. Why was that important? Again, it just it's one of those that just kind of seems like the right thing to do to make sure that we're not, um, you know, selling up front, but then not delivering on the back end, right? And so having a administrator, you know, talk to you about the services and support that we offer is one thing. But when you have a sophomore, junior, senior, who was in the same environment and has been through it and is thriving at Fort Smith, that message seems to really, really resonate with families as well. All right, I'm going to ask you a question about your job, because I know Flores will tell me that Valentine's Day and Mother's Day is the big time of year. For you, is it orientation? Is it during, you know, the spring when you're getting the uh, request to attend? What's the big time for, for someone in your position? So I will tell you, it, orientation at, at Fort Smith is very much a group effort. And so we do have a, we have a coordinator of new student programs and an office that kind of leads several committees kind of all year round, gearing up for what we call main event, you know, the orientations and uh, the cup camp right before. So that, that's not actually run out of the admissions office. That's kind of the fun part for our team. So our recruiters that have been working, you know, with these students and their families all year long, that's kind of the, the bow on top is seeing those students come in uh, be fired up about Fort Smith, ready to to move in or and start in August. So um, that's certainly a group effort. But yeah, for us, we will at this time of year we're kind of doing two cycles. So we're trying to close out the fall twenty three group. But we've you know really started talking to rising seniors that are about to start their senior year of high school about fall twenty four. And so uh, fall's very busy in terms of travel schedule and uh, getting out there and doing the high school visits and parent nights and all of those fun things. And then um, switch to more of that yield focus in the spring where we kind of know who our applicant pool is. We know who our admit pool is. And then again, doing some events on campus. We actually have another benefit of kind of the vibe on campus and, and having some of those bilingual admissions counselors and um, some other uh, employees on campus that, that speak Spanish. Well, you know, we will do recruitment events during the year. So uh, completely delivered in Spanish. So we have one in the fall, one in the spring. We're going to do one in, in Northwest Arkansas this year as well. 
just to again continue to get that message out that that we have that extra layer of support here at Fort Smith. Blake Bedsoul is the Director of Admissions at the University of Arkansas Fort Smith. The new student orientation with Spanish language sessions is Friday on the UAFS campus. He spoke with Kyle yesterday via Zoom. The Lunch Hour Summer Concert Series, sponsored by McDonald's, kicks off this Friday, July 28th in Tulsa with Steph Simon of Fire in Little Africa. This artist and his multimedia hip-hop project commemorate the 1921 massacre in Tulsa's Greenwood neighborhood, known as Black Wall Street. The concert will take place at the McDonald's location in the Greenwood District in Tulsa. Upcoming concerts feature Fayetteville native and country singer Joe West, Fort Smith native Tylo May, Little Rock-based duo Daz and Bree, then an all-day celebration of KUAF's 50 years on the air to wrap up the series. For more, including what you need to know about Friday's performance in Tulsa, go to KUAF.com forward slash summer concerts. I'm off in tape, Brady Kitchen. Writing up a million dollar mission. About to turn this whole house into a business. They asked me how you did it. I came up off reverse racism. If these walls could talk. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. The latest episode of Wendy Echeverria's podcast, Inspirando El Futuro, stories about Latina leaders in Northwest Arkansas, includes a familiar voice for Ozarks at Large listeners, Dr. Leah Uribe, the host of our regular feature, Sound Perimeter. In this excerpt from the podcast, Wendy introduces us to Leah's path to music, education, and mentorship. Dr. Leah Uribe was born in Cali, Colombia, a city full of life and culture. It's the second or third uh, biggest city in my country. Um, big city with all the characteristics of a big city. Noises and chaos and insecurity and beauty and ugliness. And So I grew up in the middle of all of that. Um, I grew up in a very privileged home because I, have ac- I had access to you know, education. I had access to... Um, to a family that loved me and supported me. She also grew up with music. It was everywhere. Colombia is a country that's well known for its spirit and love of music. Some of the world's most famous Latin American musicians and artists come from there, which is no surprise, it became a part of her story. I, um, I, I had music all around all the time, not the way I chose my path professionally. Nobody in my, in my family is a classical musician. But uh, like in our countries in Latin America, music was the background for everything. You know, riding public transportation, there was music getting together to celebrate or even to grieve. Uh, there's always music and together and many times also dancing. So, Her admiration for music led her to join a conservatory at the age of 13. At first, Dr. Rivas says it was challenging. And my parents didn't finish high school, so I'm a first um, generation high school graduate which um, has been interesting because I had to lead this path uh, by myself without the support of my parents uh, in, in, in terms of instruction, right? And telling me, go there or do that. But uh, in terms of support, after they got over the fact that I was going to be an artist and not an engineer or a lawyer, which was their <laughs> preferred profession um, and expectation, um, they, um, when they understood what I was doing with music, they became supportive and really proud of my path. While in the conservatory, Dr. Uribe wanted to explore her options in music, but ultimately chose the bassoon. 
But you may be asking what led her to that choice? Well, it was the fact that she would become the first female student to play the instrument in the institution. And that thrilled her. So I said yes before actually seeing the bassoon. And then it was a really weird instrument, still is and very unusual, even more so in my country. She says all her training, her bachelor, master's and doctoral degrees are in bassoon performance. Classical music and the bassoon became a part of Dr. Uribe's identity. It was a way to express herself. It made her stand out. Because I was being a rebel, you know, literally a rebel by listening to classical music while my friends were listening to Tina Turner, you know, and rock in Spanish. I'm like, I don't want anything to do with popular music. I'm a classical musician. But for Dr. Uribe to continue her path as a bassoon performer and a classical musician, she had to leave home. It was very unusual and unexpected, especially in my own family, and especially as an only child, to consider leaving home to go study someplace else. So I was in a big city where I could go to any university and achieve the traditional paths, but to be a musician, I had to go someplace else. So she left and went to Bogota, Colombia, the capital city of her country, with more than 7 million individuals living there. Bogota is a really active city with a lot of cultural activities. So uh, it was a, a universe that was not ac uh, accessible to me when I was still in Cali. And that kept feeding my ideas that I wanted to be that. I, I didn't really know exactly what I was going to do with the bassoon because they, they, it's limited, the, the possibilities, or they, they have been uh, traditionally. It's an instrument to play in a symphony orchestra. It's rare to see a bassoon in jazz or in popular music or in other, um, in other places or spaces. But she knew she wanted to perform on stage. I happened to see the symphony orchestra, and that was fascinating to me, just to see all of those musicians together, um, making music together, and it was just a, a world that was just mysterious for me and fascinating. And then I, the more I started listening and going to concerts and, and getting to know more about the composers and the music itself, I started feeling this emotional connection with some of the music that I had never heard before. So one thing is to cry when you listen to the, to the songs, popular music that have words, but then to discover this world that slowly but truly will speak to me. During her time in Bogota, Dr. Uribe says she played for some of the most important symphony orchestras. And when she received her bachelor's from La Universidad Nacional, she continued working with the orchestra, but also led an after-school program for a private school for boys. Yet, deep down, she wanted more. She desired to explore the world. So she began to seek opportunities outside of the country. And every time a musician from a foreign musician came to give a class or to visit my school or to play as a soloist with the symphony, I was always asking questions. Um, in that process, while working with that school for boys, uh, I had a mentor, which was the director of that school. Um, amazing lady with a lot of initiative and connections. She was an amazing pianist, but also, uh, you know, she had found a way to create this contemporary music festival and bring soloists from all over the world and raise the money. So she brought me in to work with her and uh, told me about this place called the Banff Center for the Arts in Banff, Alberta, Canada. 
So she said, you need to apply and go there and spend some time there. And I did, and I didn't even know what I was doing, what for, but I applied for a residency. I had no idea what a residency was, but I got in. She was there for almost a year and moved back to Colombia. However, her purpose to travel was not over. I realized I needed to do something else, so that's when I applied to different schools to work on my master's. I learned about TAs because otherwise, as a you know, a student from Colombia, paying tuition and moving to a different, it was not in my possibilities or my parents. But I got a TA and I came to the University of Arkansas to work on my master's. Uh, so that was my degree, and then I left Arkansas for some years. And yeah. She moved to Indiana to work on her doctorate, but stopped because she had her first child. She says she then moved to Missouri to be closer to family. My kid's dad, uh, his parents lived in Missouri at the time, so we just went there to get some help. I didn't have any family here, and ended up staying in Missouri for almost 10 years, and came back to Arkansas when the bassoon position, uh, the professorial bassoon position came open, and in the middle, Many things happened. I got divorced, I got other jobs, and I work on a doctorate. Being a single parent and working on a doctoral degree was not easy, but Dr. Uribe was determined. And I chose uh, Lawrence and KU because it was the closest place to get a doctorate in bassoon performance. That's three and a half hours away, but I couldn't move to Lawrence because I had kids and jobs. So I was, you know, part-time student, part-time keeping the majority of the jobs. So I commuted three and a half hours in the morning. Like I would get, <laughs> wake up in the morning, take the kids to their school. They were very little. Uh, drive my three and a half hours, take my bassoon lesson. I had a TA, so I had to teach sometimes, teach my classes. They were very gracious and accom accommodated to what I needed. So the classes that I had to take, uh, they were independent studies. So I didn't have to really go with a schedule of four times or three times a week. They took my professional experience as um, instead of the requirement that everybody has when in college or working on these degrees to be in the university orchestra, um, which that had, would have added, the logistics would have been impossible. So they were very, very patient and, uh, and accommodated to my needs. Um, this was an experiment. I was the first person doing something like this. It was crazy for them as well as it was crazy for me. So, uh, but I was very lucky to have that support system at the university and I got my degree in four years. She graduated in May of 2013 and says the University of Arkansas's bassoon position was open at that same time. When I applied and got it, which those positions are really difficult to get. Usually there are not very many jobs, academic jobs that are tenure track. And, uh, but I got it thankfully and 10 years ago. You can hear this complete episode of Inspirando El Futuro, stories about Latina leaders in Northwest Arkansas, by going to KUAF.com or by subscribing through any podcast distributor. For the Central Arkansas Library System, I'm Mark Chris with an Encyclopedia of Arkansas Minute. A terrible plane crash took the life of Arkansas's top New Deal official in 1936. W.R. Dias, the state's Work Progress Administration chief, and WPA Finance Director Robert McNair were among 14 passengers on a plane flying from Memphis to Little Rock on January 14, 1936. Airport officials lost contact with the plane at 7.14 p.m. About the same time, a St. Francis County farmer heard a deafening roar and reported a possible plane crash. 
Police officers headed into a swampy area north of Highway 70 and found the plane's wreckage scattered over 400 yards and 5 feet of water. There were no survivors, and the Arkansas Gazette reported that bodies, slashed and broken, went hurtling through the trees, scattered like so many marbles tossed out of a bag. Life had ended for all of them before they landed in the marsh and were covered by the waters of the oozing swamp. Officials honored Dias by naming Colonization Project No. 1 in Mississippi County after him. To learn more, visit encyclopediaofarkansas.net. The Wingate Museum of Art at Hendricks College in Conway has been open for four years. The museum is part of a multi-purpose building with living spaces above and an adjacent theater for artists, lectures, and films. The museum's permanent collection grew by two pieces recently, works by Mississippi-born Marie Hull. The collection also again features a just-restored work with deep Arkansas and northwest Arkansas connections. Arrival at Camp Jerome was painted by Japanese-born Henry Sujimoto after he was forced to relocate to Roar, Arkansas by the federal government during World War II. The painting has been cleaned and restored by an art conservator in northwest Arkansas. The painting and the artist were championed by two Hendricks faculty members of the 1940s who also have significant connections to Eureka Springs. Yesterday, I talked with Christian Cutler, the museum's director and curator, about arrival at Camp Jerome. It is an amazing um, work on canvas. Uh, by Henry Sujimoto, uh, who was born in Japan in 1900, as I recall, um, came to the United States to the West Coast in 1919. And um, when uh, World War II broke out, um, as we all know, uh, numerous uh, internment camps for Japanese Americans um, were uh, organized and put together by the government. And um, he was uh, moved to Arkansas um, into one of these camps. And um, he was already a practicing artist. He had already um, uh, trained uh, in the United States and in France. Um, and unfortunately, he was uh, put in Camp Jerome, um, but continued uh, to make work. He brought along with him um, a number of uh, art-making materials, his paints, some canvases, and um, yeah, so he was making work, and luckily some uh, very astute faculty members at Hendricks College um, found out about his work, um, kind of uh, discovered that he was in this camp, and went to visit him, saw his work, and invited him to have an exhibition here on the Hendricks campus uh, in 1943. It's amazing, and, and of course those faculty art uh, members of the faculty art at Hendricks were Lewis and Elsie Freund, who later became somewhat synonymous with Eureka Springs and encouraging artists in in that Carroll County town to you know be to to further their careers. Yes, well, you know, and yeah, Lewis Freund is um, is he and his wife Elsie uh, discovered uh, that Sujimoto was in the Jerome Relocation Center. And uh, Freund uh, organized numerous art departments um, and art centers across Arkansas, all the way from Eureka Springs down to Little Rock, uh, including uh, spending two or three years here at Hendricks College. And um, yeah, just an, you know, an individual, uh, very influential, rather influential uh, art couple um, who, um, who definitely made a difference here in Arkansas. I know this is radio, but what can you tell us about Arrival at Camp Jerome, the artwork, what we see when we, when we look at it? It is 
to me, it is astounding because of its size, because of its drama. It is a portrait of Sujimoto, his wife, and his daughter. Um, upon their arrival to the relocation camp, you see a uh, steam engine train in the background. Uh, they have their um, their duffel, their uh, their bags, their trunk, uh, art supplies all piled around them. Um, they look a little uh, desperate and um, and saddened by this move uh, in their faces and in their body language. Um, and it is a, a colorful, yet muted color, but colorful, um, large work on canvas that is just a beautiful rendition of of the emotions and the scene there at the relocation camp as uh, the Sujimotos arrived. And I mentioned it was returning to the Wingate collection, and that's because it has been um, restored. And that process, I believe, took place in northwest Arkansas as well? That's correct. There is a very fine um, art restorer in the northwest Arkansas Arkansas area that we uh, sought out and hired um, to have the piece cleaned. It had never been um, uh, attended to, yet it was in just immaculate condition. It had been very well cared for here on campus. But the um, like all work that is, um, you know, that that sits around. Um, it had collected a little bit of dust here and there, and uh, the surface was cleaned uh, very lightly. Um, it brightened up a bit of the pigments in the canvas. And um, yes, it has returned to campus. We are reinstalling it uh, in the Mills Center, which is uh, outside of some of our lecture halls and uh, uh, other, and right outside the theater. So um, yeah, it is returning to campus. And we are really excited to be able to uh, to debut it uh, once again. And like so many other Japanese Americans, not only was he incarcerated, but while he was in in that camp at Aurora, he uh, his artwork was auctioned off, and he received no proceeds. Yes, you know that that is an unfortunate thing about um, you know the history of of numerous cultures across our. Uh, you know, our great states uh, in the founding early days of the United States. You are also adding a couple of um, Marie Hull works to the permanent collection. What do we know about Marie Hull? Well, Marie Hull is a primarily a Mississippi artist, but um, a fairly under-recognized uh, female painter of the South, um, trained also in Europe, but um, taught um, here in the in the South, primarily working in the Mississippi Delta area, um, we were uh, generously given by a Hendrix alum a small bird sketch, um, a dove drawing, and um, just this past year, and we decided, well, if we've got this beautiful piece by this un, you know underrecognized Southern artist, we should seek out more work. Um, we found uh, this uh, this piece. Um, um, painted in Mississippi, right near the uh, Mississippi River, and uh, it was at auction. We had a faculty, I'm sorry, we had an alumni make a uh, donation, the same alumni actually who gave the first piece, um, made a donation to help us purchase that piece and add to the collection. When can we see these works and the others in the collection? Sure. Well, we are open during the academic year um, Tuesday through Saturday from noon to five. 
Um, we seek to be the premier teaching museum in Arkansas, so we heavily rely on our students here on the college campus to keep us open and to serve as our, um, our museum educators and docents. Um, we are going to be open this summer a little bit. We start uh, actually this Friday, July 28th, um, and we will be open from Wednesday through Saturday from noon to 5, all the way through the 30th of August. And um, after that, we, we close for about a week. We reinstall uh, four new exhibitions and, uh, and start up the academic year. And I, I believe when you open Friday for this summer bit, the 100 Faces of Conway will be on the walls? Yes, we have a really fun and beautiful portrait exhibition by a local painter uh, named Faye Hadera. And uh, Faye took nominations from the Conway community for individuals who, quote, um, make Conway a better place to live. And um, she has painted these beautiful portraits of our Conway residents. Uh, 100 people were nominated, and she has painted each one of them in 12 by 12 inches, and we were opening that exhibition on Friday from 5 to 7. Um, you know, we are really excited to have these pieces by um, Marie Hull and uh, Henry Sujimoto um, as parts of the permanent collection, you know, really to reflect the rich history and diverse cultures of the American South through visual art. Christian Cutler is the director and curator of the Wingate Museum of Art at Hendricks College in Conway. I spoke with him yesterday. Tomorrow on Ozarks, a vacant tourist motel in Eureka Springs has been converted into a much-needed affordable apartment complex. We're a tourist town, so we have a semi-transient workforce. And to get people to stay and to make a good living and make it affordable to live here is, is vital to our economy. That story is on tomorrow's show at noon and at 7 p.m. on KUAF. You can always ask your smart speaker to play Ozarks at Large to hear the most recent edition of our show. This is Ozarks at Large, the annual Stroll the Atolls event celebrating Pacific Islanders and offering chances to experience Marshallese culture takes place Saturday at Shiloh Square in downtown Springdale during the afternoon, then ending with evening dance performances on Emma Avenue. Melissa Leilon, the CEO of the Arkansas Coalition of Marshallese, says this edition of Stroll the Atolls includes many of the activities we experienced last year. But add more spices into it. Uh, there is, we have plenty of things happening. We have the weaving process that's going to take place where a lot of our learners want to learn how to weave. Uh, for example, um, the dish, Marshallese dish, uh, food dish that we often uh, use back in the island will also be taught at that event. Uh, we have our weavers that are going to be there. Uh, we'll also do a lot of uh, other things that are happening in, in terms of weaving, we also will open the floor for participants who are interested in participating in a contest, like whoever wins, who has the 
has the, the fastest time in terms of weaving a dish will win or, you know, whoever weaving the best of time in terms of uh, the sport ball or Epo, is it Epo? I need I need I need is the sport, but <laughs> Epo is Epo, the ball yes. that we use for the sport. You also heard Lisa Ralfo, project coordinator for the Arkansas Coalition of Marshallese there as well. At Saturday's event, there will be dance, there will be food, there will be music, there will be art. Rodrigo Salas, the executive director of Entrepreneurship for All, says his organization is working with the Arkansas Coalition of Marshallese, Bank OC, Interform, and an alumni business of the Entrepreneurship for All program, Pitco Kits, to host an art table for families on Saturday. We have been working very um, closely with them to try to bring the Marshallese community into our program. And, um, and we were talking about having a table at the Stroll de Atolls, and they told us that they were looking for an art activity for the children. Um, so we immediately thought about one of our entrepreneurs that they do this beautiful wood, laser-cut uh, wood art kits um, that are decorated with uh, upcycled materials. Um, and they do really nice things for children. So we, you know, we asked them if they would be interested in bringing them over to, to the store at all, and they said, absolutely. Um, so we talked to our entrepreneur, and they said, Yes, absolutely. We want to be there. Um, so that's how it all came together. And um, at the beginning, they weren't going to create anything specific, any anything in specific. But as they thought through the through the you know the process and everything, they realized that they needed to make something unique and exclusive for uh, the Stroll de Atolls, and they created a uh, a kit that um, is. Uh, includes a plumeria flower, that it's the national flower of the Marshallese Islands, I believe. Melissa Leilon says, yes, the plumeria is indeed the national flower of the Marshall Islands. One thing that I can uh, kind of connect to that is, you know, uh, it's a feminine symbol, mm-hmm. femininity symbol, symbolism. So as a woman, I can relate to that. And it has a very soft message mm-hmm. to it as well. Um, but it also encapsulates everything what our culture is. Uh, when you when you welcome someone, you use a lei, and that lei has plumeria in it. It can have plumeria. It can have anything, any flower on any it. Flower. So, yeah, we always associate that with, you know, like our culture being um, a welcoming culture. We always want to make sure that our, you know, our visitors are feeling very welcomed. Yeah. This year's fourth Stroll the Atolls will include fire dancing, a flag dance, island dance, and other performances, and food, too, including Marshallese Donuts. Yes. Oh, have you ever tried Fresh. them, Kyle? These donuts come with great reviews. Fresh they are donuts. amazing, amazing. They so it's are like the sugar one, but ours is not as, it doesn't have all the glaze and all that. It's not as sugary, but yeah. it's, um, I, I don't know, like they, they are different, and they're a little bit, they're less spongy. Um, but so, so good. If you find them fresh, they are amazing. It's full. You know how, you know, our donuts, you go to Dunkin' Donuts, you go to Krispy Kreme, their donuts are uh, shallow. Mm-hmm. Our donuts are full. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're really at their best when it's hot, when it's fresh off the oil. So a lot of people are looking forward to that as well. Stroll the Atolls is in downtown Springdale on Saturday. 
A Marshallese cultural and history training session will be at the Shiloh Museum of Ozark History beginning at 10, but that has already reached capacity and is now closed. The rest of the events, all of them open to the public, start Saturday afternoon at 1 with an opening prayer. And then the finale, the Fire Dance Show, happens in the middle of Emma Avenue beginning at 8.30 Saturday night. There will also be performances throughout the day and evening highlighting art and culture from Tuvalu, Kiribati, Samoa, Tonga, and other nations. And the art table Rodrigo mentioned begins at 1 Saturday afternoon. There will be 200 Pitco kits available for children and families to create their own art inspired by the Plumeria. You can find a complete schedule of events at the Facebook page for Arkansas Coalition of Marshallese. Greetings, music lovers. This is Dave Smith, host of Ozark Highlands Radio. We have a very different show for you this week as we present more songs out of style, performed by various artists recorded live at the Ozark Folk Center State Park in Mountain View, Arkansas. And Aubrey Atwater discusses how songs change as they're learned and performed by new artists. That's this week on Ozark Highlands Radio. Ozark Radio Highlands, Saturday evening at 6, following the KUAF Vinyl Hour on 91.3. Contributors to the program today included Daniel Carruth and Wendy Echeverria. Additional reporting provided by the new staff at KUAR Radio in Little Rock. Program was produced right here inside the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2 at the Carver Center for Public Radio. Our Director of Community Engagement here at KUAF is Jasper Logan. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith. Rogers and Cravens. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Don't forget that you can always find past reporting, more information about the stories you heard today on today's show at ozarksatlarge.com. You can also find a neat little new daily word game at yeah. the top of the page at ozarksatlarge.com. It's a five-letter word game. You see some yellow tiles. You see some green tiles. You can play it <laughs> at ozarksatlarge.com. It's free, by the way. Absolutely free. No subs- subscription required. We will be back with you tomorrow. KUAF's Lunch Hour Summer Concert Series kicks off July 28th in Tulsa, Oklahoma, with a performance from artist Steph Simon and a conversation with owner-operator Mike Gentry. This concert will take place at 1441 North Peoria in Tulsa in the McDonald's Play Place. Reserve your tickets at KUAF.com backslash summer concerts. The Momentary in Bentonville invites guests to the world premiere of Die No Die Arkansas by artist Maddie Davis. Presented nightly from August 4th through the 6th, each evening features six artists performing dynamic dances along intersecting routes throughout the Momentary grounds. Tickets on sale now at themomentary.org.